speak. I have been, uh, uh, something has been stirring up in me lately. I've been a little restless and I've been a little uh, stirred up and, uh, and the songs on my heart. It's been, it's been a pretty cool ride as of late. And, uh, but I wasn't thinking about sharing it up front or um, speaking on it. And then Chris Dunn outside said, hey, you know, we haven't heard you speak in a long time. We need to, we need to get you up there. And I think Nick heard it. And they're like, yeah, you pick a time, pick, you know, pick a date. Anthony, like, give me a day off, would you? <laughs> so uh, I thought about it, and then he texted me out of blue, and he said, hey, remember we talked about it? And that very day, I was actually feeling like the Lord was leading me to speak. So he was speaking to Petronick as well. So that kind of stuff, I love, that confirmation of the Holy Spirit working. Uh, I... Uh, I struggle with my uh, freaking emotions. So I think there's something wrong with me. But <clears throat> let's just pray. Lord, we ask you for your incomprehensible love. Praise you, Jesus. Lord, help me to get through this. Mm. Lord, let my manly side show up. <laughs> okay, thank you, Lord. Amen. Uh, you know, we have very busy lives. Very uh, strange times we live in, indeed. We're running around busier than a mosquito on a nude beach. And uh, that, that uh, focus of the world around us and the busyness of life can take us away from the basics. And that's one of the things I feel like the Lord uh, has been showing me is getting back to the basics, getting back to the brass tacks, if you will, the, the foundation of everything that we know and um, believe. So what is the basics? The basis is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Since the fall of the garden and Adam and Eve's choice to uh, disobey God for eternity after, not eternity, for time after that, we were all been fallen short of the glory of God. There's nothing we can do to pay that debt, to, uh, um, there's no good works, there's no procedure, there was a sacrificial system which abated God's judgment on the uh, Israelites, but that was it, that was the best you could get. Nobody could be in the presence of God. Uh, you know, Moses barely did it with the, you know, his very life. And he was chosen by God to be the leader. And um, the Bible also says the wages of sin is death. If you do not accept Jesus in your heart, if you don't ask him to be your Lord and Savior, uh, 
that sin nature of yours is going to kill you. And there's a whole bunch of people out there in the world that are dying because they don't know the Lord. They don't know the basics. I'm sorry. But praise God, Jesus came on the scene. And from the very beginning, God had a plan that he would die on the cross and take our sins upon him, which would cause him to die. And in his death, he buried our old lives, our past, our sinful nature and buried it and then in three days he's resurrected and in that we can glorify the Lord we should um, in fact there's evidence of them doing it in the Corinth Corinthian church when Paul had to admonish him okay cut back on the celebration of the eternal life that you're gonna receive because you guys are getting a little drunk so hold off on the wine drinking but they were celebrating. It's a celebration. Amen. Even if something that's so heinous happened, Jesus said, I, uh, I um, you know, putting words in his mouth, I love you that I was willing to do that. I was put on earth to do that very thing. I would do it again. He doesn't have to, thankfully. But he would do it again and again and again to save us from eternal damnation and our sins. The Bible also says that John 3.16, the famous passage, he so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Everlasting life is an abstract concept. It's so, you know, forever, forever, I will be with him. I think because it's so abstract and we don't spend a lot of time using our imagination to know what that means, what it does is it lulls us to sleep. And that hope that we have for the, the being in his presence starts to dwindle, the flame dies. And so uh, I know in my own personal life, if your hope isn't being informed with the concept of eternal life, that hope begins to die. It begins to go to sleep. And we have uh, vast amounts of the land with many sleeping Christians. Now that may sound depressing. You know, wow, we've fallen asleep. We've let so many things go. Let so many things take place that we should have been holding against as stalwarts of, you know, the army of God, holding up the wall of truth and morality and justice and we've let that slip because we were sleeping. But the upside of that is, they're, they're Christians that are asleep. They just need to be woken up. Amen. And once they all wake up, yes. you know, the very foundations of hell 
is going to be shaking and they're going to be scared and there's going to be demons running wild, yes. you know, scared out of their minds because yes. the Christians woke up. When you are seeking liberty, when um, the Liberty Bell says for, um, we proclaim liberty to all the captives, I'm paraphrasing from, his, from Exodus, it was put on there and the foundation of this country. They saw the uh, similarities of being set free from the tyranny and starting here and being given a promised land and given a land for them to come to. Um, the hand of providence of God on the events that took place in the you know, 16th and 17th century was nothing short of miraculous. Nothing short of it. And where one way I fell asleep, one way I, uh, my own spirit had fell asleep, fallen asleep is I was actually believing for a while that maybe we should call back on the whole we're a Christian nation. You know, and maybe we should pull back on, you know, uh, we're a special uh, country, you know. And I would let that um, deception come into me. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't compare America to the promised land of Israel. You know, and Israel is its own thing. You know, the, the Israelites are their own thing. America is not even mentioned. It's just this grand, amazing experiment. So that put my spirit to sleep. And it took... Um, it took God, and it also took reading stories of that hand of providence on America. So I started to seek, well, what is liberty? What is liberty? You know, liberty is just, uh, uh, the very basics is you're not chained. You're, li you're, you're liberated. You know, you're not in prison. You're liberated. When Jesus comes into your heart and you confess with your mouth and believe and call him Lord, your Savior, Lord, the Lord is my Savior, you have been set free from the chains. The prison doors were open, and you are now free to serve the Lord. There's nothing between you and God anymore. Not your sin, not your past, and not even the mistakes and the things you do in the future. That is his promise to us. So when you seek the liberty, you have to decide, well, where does it come from? If you're talking from a pure materialistic uh, standpoint, then liberty is a figment of your imagination. You're just merely floating eons and neutrons, um, hardwired from eons of time to think the way you do and to believe the way you do. And everything you come up with, it's just, it just works for you, doesn't really work for the other guy. It's very relative. It's ridiculous to even try to define the word. So you know you can't find it there. You have to find it in Jesus and the very author and creator of this universe. That's the only way to get liberty. So when you find the source of liberty, you inevitably find God. And when you find God, you realize man can't possibly come up with the term and the uh, concept of liberty. Only God can. And since God came up with the concept of liberty, why was it so important for him to have for us to have that liberty? Because if we were just mere puppets and uh, slaves or... Um, uh, the Matrix, you know, we're just all asleep and we're serving this greater uh, mechanical, robotic structure. That's all it is. That's all it is. God knew that he wanted a people to 
worship him and have a relationship with him of their own free will. You have to decide how you wanted that relationship to be. God doesn't do that. God already said, I put you here. I gave you Jesus. I gave you away. Now what are you going to do? Are you going to take that, believe it, and let that be your uh, walk from here on out? Uh, when you do, when you find that liberty, there's nothing short of, uh, of the joy that you'll receive from that. Um, so recently, while I was just being woken up, I feel like I was coming out of a, you know, uh, a coma of some sorts. I wasn't really hearing from the Lord. I wasn't really prophesying. I wasn't really, um, you know, seeing things like I used to. And then when I came to and I started to uh, feel the presence of the Lord again, if that makes sense, I started realizing that I'm having a lot of deja vu, you know, especially for some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about tonight, today, this morning. Uh, I'm like, I've talked about this before. And so I wrestled with the Lord. I don't want to talk about something I've talked about before. I want something new, because that's what the people want. They want something new and amazing, and whoa, what insight. And, uh, and possibly, you know, think how great I am. <laughs> how terrible is that, right? It's just terrible. So the Lord smacked me around and said, uh, I don't care if it's not something they've heard it before. That's what they need to hear. And so there's a certain sense of we need to be continually reminded of who we are back to the basics. So I listened to this message on YouTube, and um, it was some random church somewhere, and the guy was hollering and shouting during the whole message. I thought there was something wrong with this guy, you know, that gets so heated up and upset. And then he would calm down, and then he had this big cloth, and he was wiping all the sweat off his face. You know, he was just, uh, you know, anyways... But what he said struck me. And then I was like, I gotta go back to that and find it. I cannot find that video. <laughs> Anywhere. In my history, on my phone history, I knew about the, right about the week I saw it. It does not exist. So somebody took it down because that guy was behaving like a crazy man. But what he said was the truth. Amen. And what it spoke to me was, there is a battle when you receive the Lord Okay, your, your name's written in the Land Book of Life. You have salvation, but then there's a working out of your salvation. You know, there's a walk, and if you live in, a, you know, for the next 40, 50 years, that's a long walk to uh, have that salvation that the Lord gives you. So you're waiting, I'm going to talk about this in 2 Corinthians 5, you're waiting to have that body to be with the Lord, but while you're here, you have something that you could do. There's a purpose to your life. It's just not waiting for, Lord, take me now. You know, the world's falling apart. Just take me. No, the Lord has something for you to do now. So the battle that the enemy knows, okay, fine. You accepted Jesus in your heart. I'm going to make your life hell. And if you let me make it hell, I'll be really make it hell because you're believing the wrong thing about yourself. And so what he mentioned in the thing, in the video, was there's this battle of what you think you ought to be compared to what you already are. So that title of my message today is You Are. There's a battle of what you think you ought to be and there's a battle of what you are, of who you are. So I think right now it would be good to go to a, the Bible. They say if you don't go to the Bible in the first five minutes of your message, 
It's all heresy. Uh, Romans 4. I didn't, did I say that? I didn't say that. Romans 4. Let's go to Romans chapter 4. If you're seeking to understand the basic, um, like I was trying to say, going back to the basis of, of serving the Lord, read the book of Romans. Amen. I encourage you, read the book of Romans. It'll show you exactly how you've been set free in the court. Uh, Paul is a very court-minded uh, thinker, and how you've been absolved of your guilt, absolved from your sinful nature, and that you have been pardoned. So someone else came in and said, I'll take all the punishment for what you did, for the sinful nature that you have, and I'll be sent to jail and then be put to death. And you get to open that door to the courtroom and walk right out. And that's the whole basic of Romans. But there's so much good stuff in here. But Romans 4 says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he do? What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Now, one thing that the devil and the world has tried to pushes down and how you ought to be, as opposed to what you are, is if you are a Christian, you ought to know that faith is just believing in something that doesn't exist. That's how it ought to be. Don't you know that's what faith is? But if you know about who you are, faith is I'm accepting uh, things that I don't understand from God, what his purposes are about my life. You know, I don't know what those are specifically, but faith is actually saying, I believe in something that I'm taking responsibility for. Faith is having the belief and the hope in a God that you know is true. Does that make sense? Faith is not just saying, well, God can't be seen, so I'm just going to take this leap of faith and just believe that God is real. People have done that and found out God to be true. But that's not what faith is. Faith is God spoke to Abraham, Abram at one point, and Ab uh, he's speaking to God in this uh, amazing way. And Abraham knows this God, and then God says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And Abraham believed what he said, the words from God's mouth. When people work, their wages are not a gift but something that they have earned. You put in some time, the employer decides how much that's worth, and you get paid for it. But people are counted, but people are counted righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God, who forgives sinners. So you didn't do anything to receive the salvation from God. You didn't have to do anything, nothing. Even the most nicest, kindest, amazing person you will know in your life can't earn the salvation from God. David, verse 6. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. He said, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. 
Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. Wipe the slate clean. You believe that, that's your faith believing that, and then you will know it. I guarantee it. Now, is this, is this blessing only for the Jews, or is it also for the uncircumcised? So, I'm going to skip real quick here. He goes through here. But Genesis 14, 15, 16, 17, all this Abraham account. Um, uh, actually, maybe going back to Genesis 12. But all this account is talking about how David, uh, Abraham was called by God, told that he would be father of many nations, and Abraham believed before he was circumcised. And God counted him faithful. Then later, much later, after Ishmael, his other son was born, that they did the circumcision. So the circumcision is a sign. Baptism is a sign. Um, there are many signs that show that you are making an outward sign that you are following the Lord Jesus. But the salvation part is imputed in you as righteous because of your faith. That's it. Not your works and not the things you do, not the tattoo you get or the clothes you wear. Uh, all of that doesn't make amount to a hill of beans. So Abraham 13, 12 was also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. So clearly, God promised to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God promises only for those who obey the law, then his sin is not, faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless, which we saw through the life of the Israelites all the way up to Jesus' coming on the scene. Um, Let's go to verse 16. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses. Whether or not we live according to the law of Moses. If we have faith, like Abraham, for Abraham is the father of all who believe. Here is the awesome verse right here. That is what the scriptures mean when he told them, I have made you the father of many nations, this happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. And in the famous passage, he calls those things that were, were even though they were not. So when he said to Sarah, you will bear a son, he took that dead womb in her body at a 90-something-year-old age, and she's going to have a baby. Because God said so. Hallelujah. He takes something that was dead and brought it to life. And then, of course, he takes something from nothing and made it. And that's the creation of the world. Everything we see, everything we know, is the creation of the world. You know, um, part of being asleep is you're not really paying attention to the world of um, archaeology. Uh, Abraham here, later on in the story, comes as a story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that great, great city. And for years, they thought it was, the, they discovered it because they found a, you know, nine feet deep ash uh, underneath all these layers of earth, near the Dead Sea, toward the southeast, southwest. 
And this famous biblical archaeologist said, this is it. And everybody believed him because he was a stalwart defender of the Bible. So they didn't want to question him. But years later, a guy said, reading the Bible, I think his last name was Collins, it says in the Bible, it's up here. It's in the Kikar Valley. It's this area up here. That's where the Bible said it is. So the Bible got it all wrong if it's down here. And he believed, I'm just going to take it for what it says. I'm going to believe it. And so he went up there and he found this huge mound of hills. And he just thought, maybe, you know, this would be a great place to build a city because it's up high. And so he started digging another nine, ten feet and found again layers of ash and broken pottery and human bones, all kinds of debris, just crushed. They said, in fact, when they first opened it up, um, what is this, 37th century later, something like that, the, the smell of burning ashes filled their nostrils when they opened it up. And so just 10 years ago, they came out with the book. So I want to say it was 2011. They took this pottery, which Collins saw, oh, we got the age wrong because there was a glaze on it. And the glaze didn't come until much later. So he's like, this can't be Sodom and Gomorrah. But when they flipped it over, it had pottery of the style of the age of Abraham, 1700 BC. So he thought it was really weird. And then a guy, Danny, a military guy who was on the excavation said, you know what, that strangely looks like Trinitite. And Collins said, what's that? And he said, you know, nuclear glass. You know, when you do a nuclear detonation, it creates it's powerful heat creates all the sand and whatever debris into green uh, nuclear glass. So Collins like, well, maybe we're on to something. So he sent it to a lab in New Mexico, right near where they did the testing of the nuclear bombs. And um, he said when he walked in and gave it to the woman who took it, she go, nice piece of Trinitite you got there. She knew immediately what it was. Now, there was no nuclear inventions in 1700 BC. So they discovered where Sodom and Gomorrah is. The ancient city that literally only the Bible records, and it made it true. And then in, and even more, they found the Ur of Chaldees, where Abraham's from. They found the, the writing that proved that. And they also found the one thing the Bible was constantly criticized for was the Hittites. You can find the, all the other ites in there in history, but they could never find the Hittites. So they're like, the Bible's quack. It's making up a race that didn't even exist. And a guy who read the Bible and he kept figuring out what the clues were saying where they were, it was somewhere in northern Turkey, and um, it was actually hiding in plain sight. No one just ever really went there. And there's still some walls exposed where the city was, and it was actually bigger than Sodom and Gomorrah. And they found inscribed writing there, and they couldn't read it right away, and they matched it with others, and eventually found the lost city of the Hittites. So that was proved. So the constant archaeology that's being discovered, no one ever talks about it. But what it does, to me, what it does, it just proves the, the Genesis account is the oldest ancient Near East talking about ancient times going all the way back to Abraham and then the creation. And then they are able to use the Bible to find it. And you're trying to tell me this is quack? <laughs> that this isn't true? Let alone the proofs and the evidence of Jesus' life, his very existence. They didn't even need all the biographical accounts. Josephus and all these other Greek last name Roman guys were all writing about it too. So that 
um, knowledge, will that change anybody's uh, mind? Probably not. Will that make anybody come to Jesus? Probably not. So going back to the basics, going back to the basics, you have to tell the people in the world around you that God will take something that's dead and he will turn it back to life. That's what you need to tell them. You need to create, inform their hope and make them believe something that's not believable. Give them the faith that helps build their uh, decision to follow the Lord. So I'm trying to awaken in me the sense that maybe we're not really paying attention. Maybe we're just really distracted. Um, Antonio, my awesome friend over there, invited me to be a part of this Bible study online that was started by his sister. And uh, I, I share every other week. And uh, I thank him so much for doing that, inviting me to do it, because you know, his sister said, Antonio, you do it. It's his, his thing. But by doing so, it forced me to be responsible every other week to have something to share. Do you have a responsibility to share with anybody the gospel? Or to give someone some truth? Do you have any responsibility for that? And this is not a put down. I'm just saying, there's your answer. You walk around and say, man, I ought to be this evangelist. I ought to be this person that is strong and be able to share the gospel and bring people to the Lord. And the Lord is saying, what I'm going to read in 2 Corinthians is, you are. In Luke 4, uh, the devil and is uh, unleashed on Jesus after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, right? We all know that story. And he kept accusing Jesus, if you are the Son of God, you ought to be able to do this. You ought to be able to do this. Change those rocks, those rocks to bread. You ought to be able to um, jump from the pinnacle of the temple and the angels will catch you. If you are the Son of God, you know, I can give you all these things. You can have all the kingdom of the world. Just bow to me. He kept accusing Jesus, if you are. He kept using the you are. You ought to be able to do these things. And Jesus never took the bait. He said, you don't tempt God. All... Um, my sustenance and bread come from the very mouth from God. What comes from God? Not from Scripture, but what comes from the mouth of God. This here should lead us to the living God. That's where it should lead us to. It's amazing. It survived all this time. And it has um, proven to not change one dot or one phrase out of line from all the interpretations. So this should lead us to the spoken word coming from the mouth of God. God said, maybe that's not exactly how I want you to do it. Another thing, too, we struggle with um, the knowledge. So it happened, too. The serpent in the garden said to Adam and Eve, Eve first, if you, you should ought to be like God. You ought to be like that. So why don't you just, don't you want those things? You want to be that, right? So take uh, the risk. Uh, take the gamble. Eat the fruit that you're not supposed to eat. When G God already says, no, you already are. You already are. It's just, set, um, this concept set me free from a seemingly lifelong affliction in my brain of, of uh, sh struggle, of trouble in my head. 
from as long as I can remember it. Ever since I saw that message and I asked the Lord, who am I really? Who am I? I've had one struggle in my brain about the, the, the conflict I've always had. Not one. It's as if it never existed. Why? Because he calls things that they are not as though they were. He said it was dead, now it's alive. And you're going to have a child. You know, people like to talk about how well, Abraham made the mistake with Hagar and Ishmael. You know, he wasn't patient, like Romans 4 is saying. He wasn't faithful. When God came up on the scene, in fact, he went to Hagar with her angel and comforted her, comforted her, and then he brought her back, and he was raised in the same family as everybody else. Uh, and then God came on the scene again. There is, uh, he was 83 or 86, I think it was, when Ishmael was born. Now he comes again, and Abraham's almost 100, and says again the promise, you're going to have a child. God didn't say, and by the way, you screwed up. I told you not to do that, you know. Why were you marrying an Egyptian slave and having, you should have trusted me. Why didn't you trust me? That's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. Here's another story. You know, um, I love history. Abraham Lincoln, when he was just a no-name guy, uh, was trying to run for the Senate and kept losing against Douglas in the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates, made him um, known, but he only served in a local state of Illinois and then one term in federal you know, Congress, Washington, D.C. He was a little-known guy. In fact, he was compared to a simian ape. He thought, everybody thought his clothes were ill-kempt. He was ungainly skinny, 6'4". Um, all these things, criticism after criticism after criticism. When they held the convention in Chicago to decide who would be the runner for the Republican Party, newly formed Republican Party, you know what helped get him elected? Booze. <laughs> Booze. They were boozing it up so much, wheeling and dealing and doing things in the back room and talking about how this guy's not good and Seward and billing these other candidates. And then they were boozing it so much they got the guy in charge of the tickets so drunk that they took his tickets, redid them all, and sold them mostly to Lincoln supporters so that at the convention hall it would be real noisy every time Lincoln's name came up and they would get more votes. Then he gets nominated. He said he looked at the note, telegram, for three minutes and didn't say a word. Then he stood up and he said, well, there's a certain little person, his wife Mary Todd, which little, um, compared to him, would like to know these news, so I will depart from you all and give you a good night. Couldn't be more. In fact, Abraham Lincoln almost was, uh, had to be put into an insane asylum, committed. He was having lots of mental troubles that afflicted his whole family and, you know, struggling with depression and um, all kinds of problems. So the point I'm trying to make is, we're so worried about everybody being so righteous and so good, yet the unscrupulous behavior gave us one of the greatest presidents to stand in office for morality, for goodness, and to set the slaves free. Because the very promise of 1776 that liberty would set all men free. And here it was, this moment in time, by the hand of providence, they brought Abraham Lincoln into the presidency. So, 
one story after the next. I could go on all day. I can go on all day. It's amazing. So the point I'm trying to make is maybe we're missing something. Maybe we're not seeing this very clearly. I know there's a world of, of disgusting behavior out there. And there's a world of um, we, we, we um, agonize over the injustice and the immorality that's going on. But how can we approach it in a way where God says, you just need to believe. I don't care if you follow the law and you get it all right, or you're um, you know, dressed right, drinking right, smoking right, whatever. Um, thinking right, believing right, you know what I mean? Are we, are we missing what God has called us to be? I think what God wants to do is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I talked about how we have this earthly tent that Paul likes to use, this body that we have now, and we, um, we know we'll have a place in heaven. If you accept Jesus into your heart, you'll have a place in heaven. Also, the Bible also says, my favorite verse, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All. Anybody has a chance. So he says here, <clears throat> for we know that this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die, and leave this earthly body, we will have a, a house in heaven, an eternal body, made for us by God himself, and not by human hands. Uh, how great that is. We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on the heavenly bodies like new clothing. Paul's talking about here, we grow weary, don't we? Don't we? We grow weary. We grow weary. We're looking for a leader. You know, we're looking for somebody to stand up. Um, we have imperfect leaders all through history, but, you know, we want someone. I, I, I want another Billy Graham, you know, a guy who just, anytime I, wa I watch him on YouTube all the time, I stop everything I'm doing just to listen to him. What power and authority that guy had when he spoke. And I love his accent, you know, from North Korea. Shapta! You know, he just, he just uncanny. His voice and his life was just amazing. But am I missing something? Maybe God said, no, I already used a Billy Graham. I already did that. This is a different time. You know, so my prayer and my um, urgent um, call to you guys today, my, my family here, is we need to pray for what God wants to do now. And then secondly, we need to wake up from the slumber of waiting for our heavenly bodies and just making things go and making things just, just getting by. And we need to remember the power of calling things that they were not as they were and I'm probably getting it wrong, calling things as they were, as they were or not, taking something that's dead and bringing it to life. You go to someone out there, you know, it's Pride Month, go up to someone and say, God could take things that's dead in your life and he can bring it alive. I bet you it would hit them right between the eyes and they wouldn't even know what to say to you. And then you could say even more so, God loves you. He sent his son on the cross to die for you. God loves you. He loves you. You walk around more saying that to the people that you don't agree with and say, God loves you. And by extension, I love you. That's the, the whole nother level.
In fact, I read a story of a woman in a school who decided to do that, in a, you know, a non-Christian school, and started walking around and saying, good morning, I love you, to the person at the desk. And to go into the hallway and ask other teachers, she'd say, good morning, I love you. And then she would do it to her uh, students in the class. And it was just remarkable, I wish I remember where the school was, the change in the school. Because people were just like, somebody loves me. That's not enough of that. There's fake love, there's that pseudo crazy mask of love that we're allowing to happen. You know, the church is allowing that weird, weird love to happen. Love without, in fact, we always want to say, yeah, we have to love, like I love my children, but I still hold them to a standard, you know. I have to make sure their behavior is correct and that their character is right and that people want them around. Though people don't say, I wish the Trimble kid did not come around. That's my worst nightmare. I want people to want them around because I know by extension, they'll be successful. They will always have a job. They will always have something to drive because they have that character of being, you know, strong in that. So, so Paul doesn't, not by mistake, starts this by talking about our bodies and our eternal salvation, our eternal life with the Lord. We have it. And we will not be spirits, he says, without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. We groan and sigh. Oh, I used to groan and sigh. <laughs> I don't groan and sigh anymore. Because now I know who I am. You are. And that's the end of this chapter here. We groan and sigh, but it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies. You know, those who are escapism, those who uh, have the get-out-of-jail-free card and just sit on it instead of sharing it with others. It's not that we want to get rid of these bodies that close us. Rather, we want to put on new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this, and as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. As a guarantee. Continuing on. So we are always confident even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing, and New King James says, and other versions, we live by faith and not by sight. We live by seeing, uh, believing and, and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident, and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies. For then we will be at home with the Lord. Amen. Who wouldn't? Hallelujah. To be with the Lord. So whether we are here, in this body, or away from this body, our goal is to please him. So there's the clincher. Whether you're away or we are here, those who have been given the opportunity to be with the Lord now, live to please him. But while we are here, we should be pleasing him. It's not for our salvation we please him. It's not for getting you know, better rewards, or God will bless you better than everybody else, and you'll have everything go hunky-dory. You just are given the responsibility to please them here. For we must all stand before Christ, and Paul just says it right here. We all must stand before Christ to be judged. We will, and we will each receive whatever, uh, earth, uh, whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done here on earth. So going on, verse 11. Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. I am failing at that. 
I'm trying to make it up today. I want to work hard. This is the restless spirit in me. I want to speak in front of 10,000 unsaved people. And I want to pour my heart out to them and tell them that God can bring you back to life. You know, we're, we're so steeped in all the Bible studies and the um, materials and everything. Is, it's amazing what's being printed and put out there. We have it all. We have it all. And we're just filling ourselves up with all of that, but we're not working hard to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. Are we commending ourselves to you again? No, he says, are we boasting in other versions? No, we are giving you a reason to be proud of us so that you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. A sincere heart. How many spectacular ministries are out there? Seemingly to our eyes. In fact, they love to use Romans 4.17 for the prosperity gospel. You know, calling things out, I don't have a BMW SUV S-Class 940, therefore I will have one. That, isn't that interesting? That's what they're asking for. I will have this and that and this thing and those things. And, you know, you try working that out in Africa or the poorest remote areas of South America. It's ridiculous. It's garbage. It's not what God meant. My life being alive now is worth more than any possession I could possess. Because my possession and reward is in heaven. That's the reward I want. I'll sell the stupid cards that break down eventually. To take that and give it as love to people. You know, that's what we need to do. We need to be persuaded to work hard and having a sincere heart. If it seems like we are losing it, in other words, he's saying, or if we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. So that's where the term Jesus freak came along. And if, you, and if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us, and since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died in our old life. Christ died for the dying world out there. And you got a benefit. God spoke and said, that person, um, my wife Aubrey, will receive the Lord on such a day that she did. And spoke to Pastor Terry and said, I'm going to take you and bring you into my family and, and you're going to serve me. You know, you had that benefit of the Lord taking you and bringing you into his fold. There's a whole world out there that's waiting for us to give that same opportunity. To join us. It seems, uh, let's see, it is for your benefit. Christ's love controls us. Christ's love controls us. It says here a little bit further. I'll read it again, but I'll say it now. We used to look at people with human eyes. We used to understand them that way. Just like they used to look at Jesus and understand him, humanly speaking. And he says, now that we know we know who Jesus is, we don't do that any longer. That's powerful. Christ's love controls us. Does Christ's love control you? Or does a certain media outlet control, them, control you? Or, you know, that submarine thing? You know, everybody's so sad, you know, those five people went, no, it's not. I'm sorry. They paid to go on it. It's like um, uh, you're going on a bungee jumping thing. And you, wrote, you signed all the things. If the thing snapped, you're going to, we're not liable. And you jump off of that thing, and the thing breaks, and you die. 
Nobody held a gun to your head to do it. And you know, it just captivated everybody, you know, these five people. Meanwhile, five um, young girls are abducted like every half hour in human trafficking. And the whole world's not crying about that. You know, it's not saddened about those things. And five girls are committed suicide probably today by now already because they're so desperate for love and for truth and for the love of God. They're lost and they just took their lives. Suicides at an insane amount among young girls. But we're worried about a submarine. Since we believe Christ died for all, we also believe that all they, uh, he had died for, oh, I lost my spot, also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone, so that those who receive this new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. That's who you are. No longer you have to worry about what I ought to be. And then you, you um, if I were to use the Abraham, Sarah story, she thought, by now we ought to have a child. That's what she said to Abraham. I think this is going, maybe Hagar is the one that's supposed to have the child. And that's what they did. So if you keep working on what you ought to be, you're going to keep having children, and not the literal children, spiritual children, things that you bring into being that are messing and slowing things up. But if you live as you're supposed to be, as you are, or you can say personally, I am the son and daughter of the Most High. I am alive, no longer dead. I don't need to perform. I don't need to do all of what I ought to and I shoulda and I woulda and the shame and I'm not living up to what I'm supposed to be. God says, I've used the most silliest people boozing it up to make sure Abraham Lincoln got the presidency. You think I can't use you and your perception of your faulty self, worrying about what you ought to be, not measuring up? No. Just accept who you are. That should liberate you. And I'm telling you, as a testimony, standing testimony, it has liberated me, taken me out of this coma and to do something. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but I, I don't want to go back to being asleep or being in a coma. He died for everyone so that those who receive a new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At the same time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. They were like, who is this man from Nazareth? Who is this guy? How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. You have to faithfully believe that. Because he was able to do it for Sarah. He was able to do it for Hannah, for Samuel. He was able to uh, Jericho, knock down Jericho. They found Jericho, by the way. And guess what? All the walls are fallen inward. All the walls of the city fell inward as they dug it up. That does not happen naturally. That's not possible. So... Merely from a human point of view, we saw, we saw these things. And to this world that we live in, are we, look, that's why I said earlier, are we looking at it wrong? Are we paying attention in a human point of view? You know, what is it that we're seeing that we're missing? 
I feel like we're missing something. And so I'm asking the Lord every day, what it is that I'm missing? What it is that you want to do today? Not what worked in the past, not what sounds so good then. What is the word that you have for us today? And amen, the old life is gone. The old life is gone. And all of this is a gift from God. It was a gift. Remember, you didn't work for it, that you receive it, an earned wage. It was just a gift. And he's saying, do you want the gift? Here it is. It's free. Christ already paid for it. In fact, he's, he's sitting at the right hand of God right now. With scars in his hands, a scar on his side, and a scar on his feet. A whole uh, a man is living in heaven, raised from the dead. He's sitting right here, and he's got this gift for you. Do you want that gift? You can have it. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Now, I remember Pastor Nick had an excellent series of messages on the ministry of reconciliation. That's why I was trying to wrestle with this. Like, Lord, we've already talked about this in church, you know. But it's silly to think that we can't talk about it again. We need to be reminded of it. So God gave us this. See, read here. If you are reading it, where it says, given us, U.S., us, or you can put in, has given you, first person. So who did he give it to? He gave it to us. He says here, uh, oh, Corinth, he could say, oh, faith Christian church. He gave it to us, the task of reconciling people to him. If you think it's impossible, well, we just sang the song, God's unstoppable. You have to have that confidence and faith, the humility and the sacrifice that, that um, Christ you know, requires of us. So to reconciling people to him, bring them back to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Hallelujah. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So the message of reconciliation is what I started with, the basic gospel of Jesus Christ. The basic gospel. Not any fancy words, not any fancy book, or fancy church, or fancy ministry, well-produced ministry. He just wants us to give the gospel, the basic gospel. Do you want that reconciliation of ministry in your own life? So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. You know, if you got into a crowd that's hostile, and you're saying, and you say to them just out of the blue, come back to God, come back to God, and now they're even more hostile. <laughs> oh, who are you? You know, if you're a Christian, you ought to be this way and not judge us. If you're a Christian, you ought to uh, join us and, and, and tolerate us. Remember all the you oughts? That's what the devil always wants to put you in that box. But if you stand in front of them and say, come back to God as you are, their hostility should be completely quiet to your ears. Now, I know I can do it. I can mute these and I won't hear a thing. <laughs> but... When you speak of him and you don't hear that hostility, because Paul said they're not looking at him as a human person anymore. He said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? 
the powers and the spiritual beings of this world. So that hostility, you should see humans captivated by that. Amen. And you speak to that. Not to their, the way they're dressing, not to the, what they just believe in, not their haircuts, not their mouths speaking filth. You speak to the spirit. And you say, Lord says, that thing which is dead, it can be brought alive. And you just minister that way, I guarantee you that love would ooze from your body and ooze from your spirit. And I don't care what kind of hostility is there, you're going you're gonna to win some souls. You're going to. In fact, just describing that, I want to be in that situation. I want to be in that situation. God has made me an ambassador. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's the end of that chapter. All of that, 2 Corinthians, is awesome. So that battle between what I ought to be and what I am, what you are, is what happens when you get saved. But the enemy is going to constantly going to try to mix up how you're thinking and make you feel bad that you're not what you ought to be. And you've got to stand up against that and put on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the sword. You've got to have all that. And uh, shield of faith because it resists the fiery darts of the devil. So that's what your job is now, that you've accepted the Lord into your life. You have to be able to defend yourself up against that. Calling things as they are, even though they are not. Trust is a part of this. Trust is a part of this. Here's how you know, if anybody's saying here, how, but Jesse, how can I trust God? When I get put into that situation of hostility, knowing who I am, how can I trust him? Well, this is how you trust him. One, his life and everything is an open book. There was no secret um, uh, meeting the disciples had, and they came together and they decided how it would be written. Um, there's, I forget how many authors are of all these books, the 66 books in here. I forget how many authors there are, and, and they're all heard from God individually, separately, and recorded everything down. Um, here's another way to trust. If the research, I spoke this on last Wednesday, if the research for the solution, that we had bound all this money for the research for the solution, can't be more valuable than the solution. So we see that all the time. You, they spend so much money on trying to find a solution, but the money is good, and the things are going well, and people are wanting to, to, for that thing to be solved, the solution isn't quite as valuable anymore. Because then they'll lose it all. Their job to be gone. <laughs> gone. So the research for the solution that gets better is um, uh, like uh, streamlining things. You know? And then, you, of course, everybody, you had all these typists with typewriters, Thousands of them, all typewriting, typewriting, and I, you know, it was wiped out with the invention of the computer. And then uh, uh, email. You don't need to send letters anymore. Envelopes plummeted, you know. But the research gave us a solution that was more faster, quicker, and better. Now, Jesus and God, you know, at the very beginning, the Trinity knew exactly what they needed to do 
in order to create this world with the people that would freely choose to serve us. But we would also have justice for their decisions and justice for the world. And we would also have um, the fight between good and evil. You can't know what's good unless you know what evil is. You know? And then we would have love that conquers all things. And all these, uh, every word we use, every word I've used today has been invented by God. And so all that research gave us the solution to send Jesus to the cross because the triune God knew the solution was worth more than the research. That's how you know you can trust God. He went to die for you. Does anybody deserve more trust than that? I don't know. He went and he died for you. So you can trust him. And you can also trust him because you see others around you who have done the, the, the decision, you know? And I'm alive, and I'm well, I'm joyful and hopeful. Look at my life, as Paul always said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm proof that I'm different. And more so to him and anybody who used to kill Christians. And then he came over and now he's leading people to Christ. So we can trust him. Uh, finally, we can trust him by uh, Luke 5. When Peter was fishing all night, couldn't catch any fish. I love this story. And um, caught nothing. And Jesus comes into the boat, and he's teaching because the crowd's getting so great. And then he looks to Peter, and he said, cast your net on the other side to get the fish. And Peter's first words was, Lord, we haven't caught anything. We've been fishing all night. The fish are just not here today. We've not caught anything. But then he uses the word but. So that complaint he made is crucial, the complaint he made. But then he put a but, so I don't know why he said but. Maybe when he was speaking, Jesus looked at him <laughs> and gave him a little chill down his back. Or maybe um, it wasn't, you know, maybe my view of Jesus' as consternation is my problem. <laughs> maybe Jesus actually looked at him with this sense of love. He said, and so Peter's starting to complain and Jesus is saying, just by his very face, I love you, Peter. I love you, Peter. And Peter's like, uh, but at your word, I will do as you command. And then we know the rest of the story. They couldn't contain all the fish. And then what did Peter do, though? He messed up again. That's why Peter is our friend, because he shows us how it is when we mess up. He runs to Jesus, and he says, oh, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful guy. I shouldn't have complained. I should have just taken what you said to do and done it. That was wrong. He wasn't even serving Jesus yet. It was then that he decided to give up everything and serve Jesus. But he goes to Jesus and he says, I messed up because that's not what I ought to have been. I didn't behave what I ought to behave. I'm, 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 I'm a sinful man. And through the course of Peter's life, and then what you read, what he says in Acts, what you read in his epistles, and then all the epistles of all the letters, they realize, I don't need to do that anymore. Because I know I'm going to mess up. But it was on the cross that Jesus died for it. So I don't have to run and say, oh, I'm a sinful man. I can just say, Lord, I know who I am, and I know you died on the cross for me. What do I need to do next? You know, that's a soldier that's ready to get to the front lines and serve the Lord. That's a soldier ready to say, I am persuaded 
convinced that I need to persuade others to come back to God. And that life, just think of that life, if that was your life all the time, you wouldn't have time to worry about what you ought to be. You're bringing souls into the kingdom. That's what the Lord is calling us to do. So in closing, and actually Dave, you asked me what to play. Play the last song, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. You can play that one. Can you play it? Something to that effect? Well, you go ahead and uh, uh, play something. He asked me what the play would go with my message. And uh, I just thought of that. <coughs> so, when in closing, the Israelites were the chosen people. Um, seemingly, out of nowhere, God shows up, and Abraham, of all people, with no kids, and he says, you're going to have the children, and then it's going to be like the craziest amount of people that you'll ever birth in the history of mankind. And of course, God was speaking spiritually because uh, Paul says, and in Romans, that everyone who comes into the God's kingdom is a descendant of Abraham. So Jew, Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, it doesn't matter who you are, you are a descendant of Abraham by accepting Jesus into your heart. So now, three, four, five, billions of people on earth, now and past, who are Abraham's descendants. He's a busy guy in heaven. Come here, kids. But God chose the Israelites as the chosen people. And so he gave us this awesome example of how he would uh, rule them in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes on the scene and changes everything, showing them it, it took that amount of time I won't even give you try to estimate the time. It took that many years, centuries, to have that at this moment in time for Jesus to arrive was the perfect moment to show and to demonstrate the futility of trying to live how I ought to be. That was the old covenant. The new covenant was you are set free. You are the child of God. You don't need to put me on the cross anymore. You need to just serve me. And if you mess up, just say you're sorry if you need to say you're sorry, but just come on back. The so prodigal son, the father didn't tell him you need to be sorry and get on your knees and, and say sorry to your brother. You ruined our family and our family name. No, he gave him everything. He gave him a feast. He just welcomed him back. See, we do um, so much work on ourselves and so much, um, I don't know, heavy lifting, that we forget that we're supposed to be doing the heavy lifting is bringing souls into the kingdom. And it's trying to take a little bit off yourself. Don't put so much pressure on yourself to be what you ought to be. Just accept who you are. So when God chose the Israelites, he didn't chose them because they were special. They were a special people. In fact, many Jews would say, I wish he didn't choose us. <laughs> Imagine that. But they didn't chose them because they were special. He chose them because he wanted them to be responsible and to be the light and the uh, direction to get people to God. They were supposed to be the tribe, the, the group of people in that ancient Near East that would bring people to God by their very example. They had a certain responsibility. And I love responsibility. Responsibility, as I said about Antonio, he gave me responsibility, so they made me have to work on it, you know. And... <laughs> And I, I, 
blew it on several of those meetings too. Forgetting, I got busy and stuff like that, and Antonio's gracious heart said, it's all right, man, I'm just happy that you're doing it with me. But um, yeah, what his response is actually what kind of spurred us all on. He had every right to be upset at me. I dropped the ball, man, I felt horrible. And he's like, don't worry about it, man. I just, I'm so grateful that you're doing this with me. I'm like, why am I beating myself up? He, this, is, this is the Christ's love. This is the love of God. Antonio gave me the love of God. I didn't see him, it was on the phone, but he looked at me like Jesus looked at Peter and said, just go by my word and you'll reap a harvest. So that's what I really want to say in closing. Do you believe that Jesus spoke and that you can trust that? If you do, stand to your feet. <coughs> Now I want to give an altar call for anyone here who, two things, you really want to accept Jesus into your heart. You really want the Lord to be Lord of your life. Maybe you did it one time and you just want to rededicate yourself and say, I want the Lord to be Lord of my life, to rule and reign me, and I, and I want that life-altering change. I don't want to die and go to hell. I want to die, when I do die, I want to go to heaven and be with the Lord. If that's you, and you want to do that, I'm going to invite you to come up front. Now, it's very scary to step out and be afraid of stepping out front, but my favorite guy, Billy Graham, said, Christ publicly died on the cross for you. So at the very least, you can publicly make a statement that I'm going to serve the Lord. So is anybody here? And if you also don't want to come alone, bring somebody with you. Bring somebody with you and come with them. Come as a group and stand together. That's, that's um, the beauty of the family of God and being in the God's uh, you know, uh, church. So I just, wanna, I just don't want to miss that opportunity. If you feel that way, that God, you want God in your life, you can come up front. Now next, altar call is, if this stirred you because you want to be persuaded, and you want to be that ambassador. And if this stirred you, this message, but you don't want to look at the world the same way anymore. You want your eyes, you want Lord to remove these eyes of looking in human understanding and help me to see in spiritual understanding that the lost, dying world out there is not the people. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. It's the spirit of the enemy confusing them all and blinding them. If you want that change in your life, if you want to seek that and have that be today going forward, I invite you to come up front too.